Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is now Sunday, August 14th. 2022, the 17th day of Av, 5782. And I'm in a beautiful community. I was here all Shabbat, West Hampton, never been here before. I was part of a delegation, a group that came from One Israel Funds. We were hosted and uh, kind of underwrote the, uh, the Shabbat services here as part of a project that we're doing. Um, I've been, I'm going home tonight. I'm finally going back to Israel. I've been away for two weeks. Uh, I spoke in Los Angeles last week. I, uh, I spoke in Aspen earlier this week. If you want to know anything about Dallas-Fort Worth uh, Airport, please ask me because I spent an entire day there trying to get from out of Texas and into the East Coast. Um, two planes canceled. It's just a big mess. I, I assume you all of you know this. If you don't have to fly now, don't. Uh, anyway, it's been, a, it's been a pretty crazy ride. But as usual, the joyous things that happen to me while I'm away are the unexpected things. Um, not just the speaking, and but it's usually it's the meeting people, and it, everyone has a story. And uh, one of the uh, perks of this Shabbat was I got to meet a lot of very nice people, um, people whom I already, I, I guess you could say, aligned with politically. They're involved with, with, with One Israel Fund, so there's a lot of that common ground. But um, I have with me today Shalom Maidenbaum, who I had a very long talk with over Shabbat and uh, was telling me what I think was fascinating and I hope is interesting to you as well, the uh, his father's diaries, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, some of you know that this past summer, so my husband and I packed up and moved out of the house that we raised our seven kids in and moved into a, into a small apartment, and it was very emotional. But in addition to that, we came across all these letters. And remember letters, aerograms, and things that we had written to each other many, many years ago, parents, siblings, all of that. And we re- I realized during all the course of looking through this is that it's something that this generation really isn't going to have. Everybody's WhatsApping, everybody's emailing. And that idea of finding something in somebody's handwriting that they wrote at a certain time of their life uh, gives you like that little window into that day, into that moment, into that year that we really don't have so much anymore. It's very special. So Shalom, first of all, thank you for joining me today on Rejuvenation. I love to participate. So I'm privileged that you asked me to uh, speak. I'd love to share some memories and thoughts about my uh, dad and the diary kept that we discussed over the Shabbat. And I'm happy to uh, uh, meet your audience. So I'm Shalom, as I said, very involved with Israel, super Zionist, successful businessman who's also made sure to include Israel and Jewish institutions in, you know, on his on his agenda of places to care about, places to support, to support uh, Jewish life. And of course, especially in a lot of times uh, in Judea and Samaria and in Jerusalem. And in talking to him about his father's diaries, it becomes very clear uh, to a great degree, and obviously everybody makes choices in their life, that that love of Israel and um, the love of the Hebrew language also, by the way, and the love of Judaism comes from a very, very deep place. So first of all, tell me about, uh, well, tell, your father, you didn't have him for a long time, right? Your father passed away. 20 years old when he died. I'm uh, the youngest of six kids and uh, have a lot of older siblings, And but we had very interesting parents. I, when you're that young, you don't really appreciate uh, what your parents are all about, and my dad uh, was a really uh, a very unique person. Um, he was, uh, he's what you call, I guess, a, a Jewish Horatio Alger story. <laughs> 
You know, he uh, he came to America with uh, next to nothing and from? Uh, from Poland. He was born in a, a town outside of Warsaw called Ostrow Mazowiecka. He was uh, fairly educated. Uh, he was very proud of education. He told all of us that he would uh, not buy us any fancy cars, but he will pay for as much education as we want. Did he come before the Holocaust, after the Holocaust? He comes as a survivor. What's how, like? How does he end up in America from Poland? So he came in. He arrived in America in 1932, October 32, uh, with his uh, mom, a couple of siblings, his dad and older brother were here earlier, Uh, but uh, he always uh, thought he would wind up in Israel. He couldn't get a visa at that time to Israel. And in 1932, there is no state of Israel. It's no it's British Israel. mandate Palestine. It's yeah. British mandate Palestine. And uh, he came as a new immigrant. And what's uh, unique about his education was, unlike the profile of most uh, Polish Jews, his primary language, the language he learned and was educated in, was in Hebrew in a Zionist uh, school system uh, uh, called uh, Tarbut. In fact, there's an Israeli postage stamp commemorating, uh, I think, the 75th anniversary of Tarbut. Uh, Tarbut means culture in Hebrew. Tarbut means culture, and it was a a very uh, progressive, uh, not politically, it was progressive uh, in terms of... um, uh, It was co-ed. Girls and boys learned together, and my dad came from a religious home, and his parents... uh, were supportive of it. It wasn't a religious school as much as a Jewish educational school, and he got his uh, religious education uh, at home or in the synagogue. But uh, he studied uh, uh, the workings, of uh, writings of Bialik, Achad Ha'am. These are famous Israeli, like, they're not even Israeli poets, pre-state poets who who wrote in Hebrew. I mean, we tend to think of modern-day Israel and the rejuvenation of the Hebrew language, but there are not just intellectuals, but a lot of people in Europe before World War II, before Israel is born, who are speaking and writing in Hebrew, and beautiful Hebrew. Sure, it was. It's, it's something that most people don't know, and it's really remarkable. Well, first of all, you know, more than 90% of uh, Polish Jewry was wiped out. Uh, only 10% of pre-war Jewry was uh, even identifiably Zionistic. So you're talking about about 1% to 2% of uh, Polish Zionists that survived the war. So uh, anyway, he didn't. He came before the war. He had the uh, luck of uh, emigrating to America. And um, he was always enamored by anything uh, uh, Hebrew, related to the Hebrew language. Uh, he had his notebooks in Hebrew, really remarkable stuff. And he, and what's most remarkable uh, is his diaries, and that's what you and I discussed over Shabbat. Mm-hmm. That uh, he he I tell I say it in a loving way, but my dad was a, a frustrated uh, Zionist because even though we were all Zionists, we never made he never was able to move to Israel. He had mm-hmm. planned to retire there, but he died at the young age of 65. Uh, but we made many trips there. He was very involved with uh, Israeli politicians with. Uh, Everything Israel. He was the walking uh, 
joke of how do you make a uh, <laughs> small fortune in Israel uh, back in the pre-capitalism days uh, is, is you arrive with a big one. Right. So he was the... But through you and your siblings, he has grandchildren and great-grandchildren living in Israel. So the long term of his long life was successful. Long term, he was very successful. Uh, and in fact, uh, we still own an apartment that he bought there and we've built on to that. Uh, but yeah, he's got, uh, I've got a sister with nine kids and 35 grandchildren from Israel. I've got presently four uh, great nieces and nephews in Sahal, the idea, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, another one serving in uh, national service in Sherat wow. Lumi. So uh, yeah, my, uh, that's just uh, my dad, uh, that's just, uh, I'm sorry, my parents' uh, grandchildren, my, uh, my mom uh, was actually born in Israel and left because her dad uh, has actually escaped from the forced uh, conscription into the uh, Turkish army. World War One, you were talking World about. World War One. Her, her parents had a matzah and talis factory. And uh, uh, the point with my mom is that she had three first uh, cousins, so two first cousins and a second cousin who... Uh, who died um, in the War of Liberation, the Milchemet HaShikhur, in 1948. So I have a strong family mm-hmm. uh, history, and uh, uh, we've uh, many, many stories I could go on and on, but I, I think we want to stick, I think, to the topic of my... Well, I just found the diaries, I mean, totally fascinating. First of all, the level of Hebrew is just magnificent. You don't you don't even hear native-born Israelis like speak like this or write like this. And here is somebody who's born and raised in Poland who's writing his diaries, you know. And your diaries, I guess, is kind of where you let your hair down, right? And it's going to be easy, and it's your emotions. You're going to write in the language that you feel the most comfortable in, and you can express yourself best in. And here he is writing in Hebrew. So did you know about these diaries before he passed away, or it's something that you guys kind of uncovered as you're doing the, you know, post-funeral uh, yeah, kind of being the youngest and being the only unmarried child in the house when he passed. I was kind of uh, the re- family, the family historian, repository of all, and I discovered uh, these diaries. Uh, uh, I, and I, nobody I, knew about them. Your siblings didn't know. He'd I, never showed I'm them to anyone. Fuzzy about it. I mean, he's dead forty-three years. Right. I was twenty years old when he died. Um, I, I don't think uh, we knew about them. If I saw them, I saw them briefly when I was young, but never really thought much. Never mm-hmm. really understood, uh, right. appreciated uh, his background. But uh, as I got older, uh, I started really diving into them, and it's fascinating. I also now have an Israeli son-in-law who's put a whole nother perspective on them because these diaries are not just written in Hebrew, but they reflect where a young man of 19, 20, 22, 23, um, where his feelings were about uh, politics, about his uh, newly adopted country, America, about Zionism, so it, was, it really is personal, and uh, a lot of stuff was not meant for consumption by anyone but himself. Right. It was uh, so, to be part of an interview on uh, Eve Harrow's uh, podcast, but here we go. Right, okay. but it's important, and I, I, I love to share it. Um, a couple of snippets, I mean, you and I discussed. First, uh, one thing that we enjoyed uh, uh, reading is a two-pager in the diary about how, how he met my mother, you know, not to bar from the TV right. show, but uh, he uh, he describes how you know, he was a traditional religious man. But he describes how on a Friday evening um, he went to uh, went to a, d- a debate about uh, 
Judaism and Zionism uh, that was scheduled to take place in the Amgizvel Bar Park, uh, which is an Orthodox uh, synagogue. Uh, but because it looked like rain, uh, no, the crowd didn't materialize. So they heard about another uh, gathering across town. Now, this is, mind you, 1937. Uh, uh, and and um, the gathering was uh, that he went up to was in a place called Ulam Paletzion, which is a war- Zionist Workers' Hall, which is basically an organization... Uh, uh, involved with Hashomer Hatzair, which is socialist slash communist uh, organization that believed Israel was the was the uh, getaway place for those who believed in socialism, mm-hmm. but were persecuted in the Soviet Union uh, and couldn't uh, bring their ideas because they were discriminated as Jews, even though they embraced the socialist idea. Anyway, he went there and. Uh, it was Friday night, and he noticed that the speaker, and this is all in the diary, he noticed the speaker uh, was uh, smoking a cigarette. That was his first observation, which is... Uh, usually, religious Jews don't usually uh, smoke religion. on Shabbat. You're not allowed to make fire. So that right away set him off. And then he uh, noticed at the podium there was a picture of Karl Marx and Norman Thomas and other labor leaders, and he said, uh, I use a Hebrew expression or Yiddish expression, the only Yiddish word he wrote was gewalt, which means, oh my God. He said gewalt, and here are nice young Jewish boys trying to build a new God for themselves. Don't they understand uh, what the consequence of it is? Uh, And uh, he asked the head guy, he goes, okay, it's one thing if you have uh, if you if you have a picture of Karl Marx, well, how come you don't have one picture of a Zionist leader? And they said, well, Karl Marx is our our leader. And he said that 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 really uh, left him with a with a very bitter feeling. He couldn't even dance, participate in the dancing of the Hora, mm-hmm. and uh, and it just he used a great expression in Hebrew. He said, "Hemera, uh, Hemera." It's a very... Uh, it's a beautiful way of saying, like, my heart, I don't know, like, hurt my heart. It's hard It's hard to translate it, but it's really beautiful it, it, it Hebrew. It hurt my heart, and, and, and to, I don't know, heika is like... Uh, it, 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 it's really disturbing, disturbing emotionally. Yeah. You know, it really bothered him. Uh, and um, it was just interesting to see that. And uh, at the very last line of the diary, uh, that, that entry... He said, besides everything else, he, he didn't pick up English, so he was just learning English. So, of course, he, uh, he was a little uh, derisive about uh, English speaking. And he said, uh, of course, everything was done in the name of the holy uh, English language. Yeah. Uh, later on, he did master the language. And then he said, um, but he saw that, uh, that, that girl, uh, that young girl, Esther, uh, and he called her a Bat Yerushalayim, a daughter of Jerusalem. That's how he. That's how he. Uh, and that, that was your mom. That was my mom. Wow. And Esther was my mom. And uh, as if uh, he didn't need an excuse why he was there, but he 
felt that she needed to have an excuse as to why she she was at this place. And uh, she he said he had stikatosma. She justified herself that she was there. Because uh, she had no place to go on a Friday night. So he said, uh, It pays to do something about this. And a year later, he married her. And it was a, a lifelong love affair until uh, he died. So, but when you read this part of the diary, you've you've already been reading a few years beforehand. So he starts writing this what in 1934. So he's already 32, 34. So this, this particular one was 37. Right. He arrived in America in 32. Right. I have diaries that go back to then. One of the earlier diaries, though, the full diary is from 1934. It was about a year and a half in America, and it was very is very dark and very depressing, and it's the you could really relate to a, a young immigrant coming to a foreign country where they, uh, they they didn't embrace it. I mean, he ultimately became a, a, a you know, very thankful and loyal. We'll wait out the plane flying overhead. Forget the plane. For some reason, they wail these sirens every few hours here. In the Hamptons, I don't know, it's something to do with the Coast Guard or the fire department, but for those of us who are here from Israel, it's like, hey, it's Pavlovian. It is, it is, what is going on? We got to run to a shelter. It's a little strange. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. So, um, yeah, listen, my, my dad was uh, a capitalist. He built a regional uh, wholesale food, two regional wholesale food companies. He had big successes and failures in his life. And one thing I learned from him his resilience, his ability to be a little depressed and then pick himself up and start over and, mm-hmm. and go. So I, it's a life lesson that uh, I, I got as an inspiration. But you see it from, uh, you know, I, my, my, uh, my experience of my parent was um, of a young child who had an older parent. When I read diaries, when you read, get the privilege of seeing a diary of a Mm. parent when when they were young you really it's like a peek into their soul and into what made him tick and uh, I'm I'm totally involved in getting these diaries translated and sharing them with people I Mm -hmm. especially love that when I find someone from Israel and a Hebrew speaker I, I, I can't wait to share it and uh, that's what we've been doing for the past few doing. hours. Yeah. And there was another entry, and the other, uh, another meaningful entry here was the one where he um, called uh, America. This was uh, from 1934 when he first arrived. He says, America, the, uh, America's uh, the golden land. He goes, it's hard for me to hear such praise because don't uh, our fellow uh, Jews understand and were reminded by that uh, by Hitler in Germany that we have another land, uh, that we have the land of Israel. And he wrote that, he quoted a passage from the Bible, Shuvu Litzur Machzvatchem, Go back to where you were created. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, do we need another Hitler here to remind us? And this was 1934. This is before the war, which starts in 1939. Hitler's come to power, but nobody knows what we know now in hindsight about how evil he's going to be. Right. So what I take from that, and what I share with a lot of people, shake their head, I can't believe your dad understood that or knew that, not that he had any 
foresight or understood the uh, Holocaust any any more than uh, you know, Jabotinsky went around Poland and mm-hmm. he, my father was a follower of his philosophy. Uh, but Jabotinsky ran around uh, Europe and Poland warning Jews to get out that a great tragedy will befall. And that was in the early 30s. Right. You know, now you read it, you, know, you say, was the man a prophet? But really, uh, they were just politically attuned, which is why my wife and I uh, get very political, because the writing, the proverbial writing's always on the wall. And what we miss here in America, what, uh, uh, at least the... Uh, the present uh, administration and uh, the one prior to that missed is, uh, I mean, uh, specifically the Obama administration Mm -hmm. and the Biden administration uh, missed. It was the fact that uh, when Iran says they're going to build a nuclear war and they have Israel in in their crosshairs, you better believe it, okay? And they will use it. And uh, no, no amount of shaking our head and rationalizing so sometimes you have to stand up and hang on a second coming through talk about iran and then the plane flies overhead you're looking for something falling out of the fuselage no but no i think what you're saying is so right that rhetoric is just rhetoric until it's married to power and then it becomes something else entirely and at some point you can take the power away from the people spouting the rhetoric we're at that point now when it comes to iran we missed that when it came to germany and the question is if we're going to learn from history not just as jews as good people because what starts with the jews never ends with the jews you know the jews got slaughtered in world war ii and you could say it was a genocide specifically against us but a whole lot of other people good people also never came out of the 1940s and uh, and i think it's a lesson that we really really need to learn and what so fascinating about your father's diaries you know it could be that he was more politically attuned as you said and that he was paying attention and then you have to say to yourself what about the people who weren't and you look around today and you see that most people are not either they're not paying attention to what's going on they think it'll pass by they're distracted by whatever it is and there's plenty to distract you and as you said the handwriting's always on the wall if you take the time to look up and read it and how do, I mean, you as a, as a very loyal American, someone who loves this country, who works very hard in this country, who's politically involved in this country, um, as well, of course, as in Israel, um, how do you get people to wake up here? I mean, given your personal family history, where you have the proof of a father who said this is going to happen, and this is, you know, years before the Holocaust happens, ha- has that given you any bigger of an impetus to say, to try and shake people up here? Absolutely. The question in life is what motivates somebody to action? What gives an individual the feeling that that individual action, that that individual's conversation, political actions, uh, giving, supporting, what helps make a difference? We One has to believe that small things contribute to your making a difference in the big picture. And one should never say, well, it doesn't matter anyway. I have no influence. Never give up. Never give in. Uh, I like Winston Churchill's quote, never, ever, ever, ever give in or mm-hmm. give up or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's, right. that's true. You have to have determination in life. And, uh, and as Jews, uh, as a minority, ultimate minority who somehow gets treated as the oppressive majority all the time, but we are a minority. We need to make sure mm-hmm. that we 
work with our friends, and we do have friends in the world. Uh, we have the entire evangelical community uh, is extremely uh, uh, open-eyed about what matters. Um, they have uh, they have the things that are the cornerstone of what made America great, and hopefully will keep America great. Our, our family values, no matter how that manifests itself, uh, the idea is to stay away from the politization of uh, ideas and stick to um, things that are empowering, things that can make a difference. You know, uh, uh, we are America, uh, like Israel, is a successful capitalist economy, and we need to work hard to mm -hmm. keep it that way because uh, there are so many other ideologies that don't work. Yeah. I like to... And I think the cornerstones of what you're talking about also, of course, are the Bible and faith. Bible I mean, faith. You, you can get frustrated and feel that you're not going to make a difference until you realize that God gave everybody the ability to do something. I mean, most of us are not going to be a Winston Churchill. We're not going to change the world. But if we all, everyone does a little bit and does what they think is right, you can make a difference. And I, I mean, I do believe that. I have to do the most that I can do. If you do the most you can do and I do the most that I can do, and we all do that, then we will make a difference. And, you know, I come to the States and I'm here just for a couple of weeks. California's insane. I was in Los Angeles for a few days. It's frightening. It's frightening what's happening in Los Angeles. It's like the world is standing on its head. And what we used to say was satire is really happening. And uh, it seems like America is at some kind of tipping point here. And, you know, and, and can, it, can it be brought back from the brink? I agree. Um, we lived in such a cocoon growing up, and my wife and I discuss it. Uh, we just didn't appreciate the unique time we lived in. And it's really going to we'll look back uh, on the golden age of America like mm -hmm. they did on the golden age of Spain. And, yeah. and uh, look, the work you do and what Israel Fund does in Israel is really important. Uh, and the support that uh, Americans and uh, like-minded people in the world over have understanding that Israel is not just a light unto the nations, but as Israel goes, so goes the, the civilized world. So uh, the outposts and the communities, and I never, uh, I take issue with people who call it settlements. Mm -hmm. It's the communities that exist in ancient, uh, our ancient uh, homeland of Judea and Samaria are, are, are key to um, keeping Israel uh, established and keeping Israel um, mm -hmm. as a world, uh, um, I, I don't know, world power. Right. Maybe I'm overstating it, but it's right. certainly significant. And Which your father passed away after 1967, then, right? right. So, do you remember his reaction to uh, to to what happened to the Six Day War? Sure, as can. someone who's like such a, you know, Euphoria. my father wrote. A, you know, besides these early diaries, he wrote a lot of poetry. I showed you, I think I showed you a poem that he wrote on the rescue of the hostages and Tebi, but he also wrote a poem on Jerusalem Day that he passed to Menachem Begin that I have. And uh, he, he memorialized uh, dark events and very happy events uh, in Jewish history. In fact, uh, a partner of mine, uh, the Rothenbergs and the Maidenbaums, uh, along with another family, put out, uh, sponsored something called the... Um, Koren 
machzor, uh, special uh, prayers for Yom uh, Hatzma'ut, Individual Independence Day. I say them, by the way, on Israel's Independence Day. Very good, and Jerusalem Day. So I'll get you a copy of it. In it, there are 12, we sponsored the essay section. There are 12 essays uh, in there uh, from Rabbi Soloveitchik and on rabbinical uh, support of the concept of Zionism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my condition for uh, supporting the project was to have my father's uh, Jerusalem Day poem published. And it was his only poem. It was actually translated by a conservative rabbi he met at uh, the Torah synagogue. And he sourced down. My father, when he wrote something in Hebrew, it, it had an element besides the Hebrew itself, which was wonderful to read, it he he was a master of uh, the interplay uh, of words, and it always was a, um, based on some biblical uh, backdrop uh, from Tanakh, and always uh, what brought it into the modern age was it was always uh, politically current. He wrote about the United Nations in the Mariv newspaper in 1956 during the Suez. Crisis, and I read I read that article a few weeks ago. We read it. It's remarkable. Nothing has changed in the UN vis-a-vis uh, Israel. In, in I mean, since. they'll still throw us under the bus yeah, as they did in '56. Remarkable, actually. Then he used uh, he actually used the analogy of the weekly portion that you read with Bilam and Balak, which mm. was the uh, prophet uh, hired by. Uh, uh, the king of Midian to curse the uh, children of Israel. Instead, uh, the famous quote of uh, Matovo Olecha came out of his right. mouth. Yeah. Ends up blessing us instead of cursing, cursing us. us. Right. But he, he, uh, he there's a, in Hebrew, Aton is a donkey and Itonai is a newspaper. Oh. So he had his play on words that he compared the, uh, the I can only imagine. To, and right. it was published in the Ma'ariv. It was wow. a very interesting article and about how they all ganged up on Israel and how, how silly they were. Mm-hmm. What else could I tell you? So, I mean, I have a, a side question. So many people um, came to America from the old country and lo- literally lost their religion. They wanted to become more American than the Americans. They worked on Saturday. They wanted to integrate. As a result, many of these people, their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, no longer identify themselves as Jews, or they've gone far to the left. It's a question that both you and I get all the time. What's with the majority of Jews in America? Why don't they see what's going on here? Did you ever ask your father why he didn't? That would have been the easy way to go, and I'm sure a lot of your other relatives did. I know, like, my my maternal grandparents stayed Orthodox. Um, all of their other relatives, you know, went out of, of Orthodox Judaism. Did you ever ask him why why he chose to, to stay with that program? Uh, you know, it was a given for, for, for my vantage point, but interestingly... I found photos of him in Zionist organizations like the Shomer Tzair. This, uh, mm-hmm. as a child, he participated in in anything that had to do with Zionism in Poland. Uh, one of his diaries um, describes an outing to the forest on Lagba Omer. Uh, um, but as a child, he participated in a lot of Zionistic activities. Not uh, uh, he had a religious home, and he described going to for prayers and all that. 
but by the time I really knew him as a child, he had evolved into a very observant Jew. So I, I imagine his metamorphosis was from understanding uh, the the place that religion and, fa- and value systems have in life, and you could only really find that through a religious construct. And uh, he, we call it in Hebrew, we call it. He always talked about uh, uh, the Msora. Uh, you know, tradition. He was very big on tradition. He was a religious Jew, uh, went to shul. We used to open up the synagogue in the morning. I mean, there weren't a lot of Orthodox Jews where I, when I grew up in my neighborhood. But um, when I we put out that uh, book, uh, that Machsor uh, for Yom and Yom Shalayim, I was interviewed by a local paper. Just guy had to read it, and he wanted to know more by my dad. And, uh, and his love of Hebrew, I said, I said, when I went to the temple, when I went to the synagogue with my dad, he always said, I want you, he always made a point to explain, ask me, what, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? It was much more important to him that I understood what I was praying, the words in the original Hebrew that I was praying, than to say all the words. Because he says, what what's the point in just mumbling words without understanding what you're talking about? So he had a deep appreciation for intellect, for understanding, for being involved, for for you know, he was not a shy guy. He, he his diaries show it. Yeah. We have a lot of funny. You know, I always joke around about my dad. I said the one thing about my father, he was he never thought he was right about anything. He knew he was right, yes. and he, he came at life with that certitude. Sometimes, as a child, it, uh, it could be very frustrating. But uh, as a, as a person, when uh, you look back and you have somebody in your life that is so certain mm-hmm. and lives a life uh, consistent with what he speaks, right. even a life that has certain inconsistencies in it. It has served me very well, and uh, in the 43 years I've lived without him, it's as if he's been with me every day since. So, uh, and uh, as I'm getting into the, uh, you know, the the last uh, the last half of life, I guess I I'm more focused on trying to leave a legacy for my own kids, my grandkids, now having grandkids, and uh, and and my wife and I uh, like to set. Uh, an example for them, join support organizations that uh, right. speak to us and philosophy we uh, can freely embrace. And it's not just about the organizations. It's about uh, Lador Vador. It's about from passing it on to the next generation. My oldest son, uh, Nathan Nachum, who's named for my dad, I quoted something my father used to quote, and I, I forgot which who it was, whether it was Bialik or uh, or maybe another author, um, maybe Chernichovsky, uh, who wrote "Achen Nimshechet Hasharsheret Hala 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 Hala," and it's the end of a, a poem. It means, and thus uh, continues the chain on and on and on and when we all view ourselves as part of that chain we understand that we have responsibility not to break the chain and uh, that's what I uh, 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 that's the lesson 
Well learned. Well, Shallow Maidenbaum, not going through the motions. Your father didn't, and you're not either. And uh, look, thank you so much. I know that a lot of this is personal. Some of the things that you showed me in the diary, you probably your father would have been like, what's going on? This was not for public consumption. But the fact is, it really gives us a glimpse into a different time period, into a very special man. And, uh, and you really have continued his legacy, which as parents is really what we want to do. And as you said, I think giving a direction you know, not all this like let's embrace everybody and embrace everything and everybody be the same, is uh, is going nowhere. And and I think it's really go. It's more than going nowhere. It's dangerous. He was, he was a, a bit of a, you know a, a Renaissance uh, man in, in that he kept his tradition, but he was he was absolutely involved in the world around him. He built a, actually a company that went public. And for an immigrant from Poland, that was amazing. It was called uh, Met Foods or White Rose Foods. And uh, Associated Foods was a, a company mm-hmm. he rescued out of bankruptcy. And uh, he was a remarkable individual. Uh, and the business aspect of his life was completely secondary to his, uh, his creative and spiritual side and his, his thirst for knowledge. And if one thing we'd like to pass on also to our kids is Always be curious. Always want to know. His diary, not just the Jewish themes, but I, there's pages and pages. He wrote about the woman in red and the Dillinger, uh, the one who gave up Dillinger. And he has two or three pages about that. And that was in real time. For, that was in real time for him. Contemporary. Mm-hmm. The whole story was fascinating uh, about organized crime. And he also wrote about politicians in Washington. Uh, his, uh, it was a fascinating uh, uh, read. Well, I look forward to some of it, you know, being published more widely, whatever you can do. Uh, Like, really, a little glimpse into, wow, we're talking almost a century. I mean, we're in 2022, you're talking 90 years ago. That's a long time. The world has changed in many ways, and in many ways it hasn't. So, thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. All right, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation, Land of Israel Network. Thank you to Ben and to Tabitha. And uh, to everybody who's hosted me these last two weeks, to the really fascinating people that I've met and uh, tried to share with you, and hopefully to the people that I've spoken to who've just gotten maybe a little more inspired or a little more knowledgeable about what's happening in Israel and, uh, and to all of us. So uh, take care, everybody. Again, thanks to Ben and to Tabitha and to the station, Eve Harrow. Goodbye for now. You're listening to the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com, broadcasting the truth and beauty of Israel to the world.